Hebrews chapter 7. The title of this message is When You're Tripping, Jesus is Representing. Very important because has anybody here ever been tripping? You know what I'm talking about. Okay, you're tripping. It is good for us to know that when you're tripping, Jesus is representing. So we're going to get to what that means. The Bible actually does teach that, I think. And we'll see that in chapter 7. Uh, we're moving our way through the book of Hebrews. We do a verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we happen to be in the middle of chapter 7. We're just going to kind of pick it up mid-thought here and forge on. I don't have time to recap, so if you haven't been here, you just got to get the CDs or the DVDs or the podcast or the vodcast or something. We're going to pick it up in chapter 7, verse 20. We'll read and pray and we'll unpack it. Verse 20 says, And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed, they being the Levitical priests, became priests without an oath, but he, he being Jesus, with an oath, through the one who said, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, thou art a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And the former priests, on the other hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence also, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this word. Thank you for your word. Thank you that Jesus, the whole of the scroll is about you. The whole of the book is about you, Jesus Christ. And we want to come out of this sermon knowing more about you and knowing you better. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask together that you'd help me to communicate. Lord, help me from being tongue-tied, and please strengthen my throat, but more importantly, author my thoughts. Lord, we really want together to hear the unadulterated word of God, not the wisdom of man. So filter me, Lord, and cause every word that comes from these lips to be directly from your throne, and may they be useful for the glory of Jesus Christ, that Jesus, you would get more glory in this church, in our lives, and in the coastlands here. So come and speak to us. Transform us by these wonderful truths, Lord. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 As I said, we don't have time to recap what's going on in chapter 7. You have to get those previous messages. But I will say this, that the broad context of the book of Hebrews is that we have a group of Hebrew Christians to whom the book is addressed who were in danger of going back to the old things. Now, we can all relate to this, right? We can all relate. We've all got old things, be it old belief systems, some old false religion, old relationships that weren't of the Lord, old drug habits, old alcohol things. We've all got old things. And we all know that there's a temptation from time to time when stuff is hard to go back to the old things. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. That, that's just part of life. 
Quit crying about it. In this world, you're going to have trouble. But then he said, in the same breath, take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the world. And the protocol is in difficult times to cling to him, to hold on to the person of Jesus Christ. But if we were to be honest with one another and with ourselves, what we often do in times of difficulty is fall back on what we knew. Fall back on what we knew, that old crutch, that old relationship, that old escape. We don't want to do that. We want to cling to Jesus. He's a better way. That's a thrust of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better than everything else. Now, the old thing for the original recipients of this letter was Levitical Judaism. That is Judaism based upon the Levitical priesthood, the priests from the tribe of Levi, and the Levitical sacrifices, the sacrifices made according to the law on behalf of Israel by the Levitical priests. So the old thing of them was Levitical Judaism. They knew it, and they knew it well. They had grown up with it. They were saturated in it. They had bought into it. And it's a good thing they did. It's a good thing they did, because when Jesus came, he came as a Jew. And when Jesus came, he came as a fulfillment to the Jewish scriptures. And when Jesus came, he has, came as a fulfillment to the law and the Levitical priesthood and the Levitical sacrifices. All those things pointed to Jesus Christ. But you see, following Jesus wasn't panning out the way they thought it would. First of all, they had been alienated from their Jewish kinsmen by following Yeshua as Mashiach, Jesus as Messiah. The Jews said, you know what, we're done with you. What are you doing following this guy? We don't believe in him. And then to make things worse, under Emperor Nero, Rome had declared Christianity to be religio illicita, that is, an illegal religion. And practicing it would be punishable by death. So now they were not only alienated from their kinsmen, the Jews, but they were alienated from the uh, ruling world power, the Romans and the Roman Empire. And so they're in a difficult place. It's hard for them to find friends. It's hard for them to live peaceably because they are becoming the hunted. And they didn't think that's the way it would be when they followed Jesus, quite frankly. They thought it would be easier. They thought it would be different. Nevertheless, that's the situation they're in. And being in that situation... They're having a tendency to fall back on the old things. And the book is written by the author to say, hey, don't do that. Don't do that. I know things are hard. I know things are difficult. But stick with Jesus. He's your best option. He's a better option than anything else. No matter what, just stick with Jesus. That's the context of the book of Hebrews. And the main point of this chapter is that Jesus is better than the Levitical priests that they once knew and were thinking about going back to. One of the ways that he's better is the way that he obtained the office of priest. See if you can pick that up in those first couple of verses again. Verse 20. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he, Jesus, with an oath, through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, thou art a priest forever. Now the Levitical priests became priests because they came from the right tribe and the right family. They were from the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron. So just because they descended from the right people, they inherited the priesthood, they automatically became priests. Jesus, not so. You'll remember from previous studies, he was from the kingly tribe of Judah and the family of David. The way that he gets his priesthood is through an oath. God the Father swearing prophetically in Psalm 110 verse 4 that Jesus would be a priest, but not like the Levitical priests who died and were replaced, but he would be a priest forever. Now that becomes very important as we unpack this passage. He would be a priest forever, but the thrust of these first two verses is that he's unique in the way he obtained the office. He obtained it by the promise of the Father. In fact, 
The father says, I swear. He takes an oath. And I can't think of too many other times in scripture where God takes an oath. In fact, the only other time I could think of is the Abrahamic covenant. And that's like a really big deal, the Abrahamic covenant, when God took an oath. So this is a really big deal that God is taking an oath. He's swearing that Jesus will be a priest with a priestly ministry forever. Now, important to recognize that God's word is God's word. Unalterable, unchangeable. His word is his oath. His word is absolute. It's, 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 it's absolute. He doesn't have to take an oath. He doesn't have to swear. But notice how he condescends to our insecurities. So kind of him. So kind of him. He knows how we are. How are we? Oh, dude, I promise. I swear. Cross my heart. Hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. You know what I mean? Like, we're used to, my word's not enough, so here it is. Bam! Oh, stick a needle in my eye. And people are like, oh, okay, he's fully going to do it now. Stick a needle in his eyes. For sure, cross your heart. Hope to die. Guaranteed, guaranteed. Lord knows we're like that. And the Lord is simply in our vernacular because he desires to communicate with us, says something that resonates with us. I swear Jesus is a priest forever. Amen. That's incredibly important as we continue. Verse 22, so much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Better covenant. No more important concept for us to understand than the better covenant. We'll get to it next week. We don't have time this week. We'll get to the better covenant next week. It really begins to get unpacked in chapter 8. So we'll get to that later on. But the point for now is that there was an old covenant and a new covenant, that the new covenant is better than the old covenant, and that Jesus is the guarantee of this new covenant. This is a covenant spoken of in Jeremiah 31 by which we are saved. It was a covenant made with Israel. We have been grafted in. It is a salvific covenant for all those who would come to Jesus by faith. It is a better covenant than the previous covenant of the law given to Moses at Mount Sinai. That's next week. The thrust right here is that Jesus is the guarantee. He's the guarantor. He has become concerning this covenant what we would call surety. He is the guarantor. He's a guarantee. He's surety. What is surety? A person who takes responsibility for another's performance. Okay, this is going to get juicy. A person who takes responsibility for another's performance of an undertaking. What is the undertaking? For humanity to be right with God. How is our performance? Stinks. Horrible. Awful. What does Jesus do? Takes responsibility for our performance by dying a substitutionary death on the cross in our place that we might live being right with God. So Jesus, as the guarantor of the better covenant, takes responsibility for our poor performance at the cross. And he pays our debts. He guarantees then with his payment, with his person, and with his eternality that this covenant is sure that it's in place, that it is secure. So get this. When it comes to the weight of the salvific covenant and its provisions, it depends on the performance and the payment of Jesus Christ and not us. That is good news. It depends on the performance and the payment of Jesus Christ and not us. Jesus lived a perfect life because we couldn't. 
He died a substitutionary death so that we wouldn't have to. And he rose from the dead that we might live forever. And the covenant, the weight of it is upon him for its performance and its payment. So when it comes to our salvation, and as it pertains to the priesthood of Jesus, so far in these three verses, we have the Father's sworn word and the Son's guarantee. The Father's sworn word and the Son's guarantee. Look at this in verse 23. And the former priests, on the other hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, Jesus, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Now, how wonderful it is that Jesus is the guarantor of the covenant by which we are saved is highlighted in these verses. He never dies. A very simple fact of theology. Very simple fact of the theology that Jesus is the eternal one. He has always been and will always be. Without that fact, you do not have orthodox Christianity. We believe in the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. He didn't come into existence at the incarnation in Bethlehem in the cave. That was simply the incarnation. That was the draping on of humanity. He has always been, and in the same way, he will always be. Therefore, therefore, his performance and his payment never end. His priesthood, as it says, is perpetual. His priestly work of offering himself as a sacrifice on our behalf continues into eternity because he is eternal and a priest forever by oath as the previous verse says. Now, the fact that he never dies also lends itself to the main point that Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood in this way. It says in verse 23 that there were lots of Levitical priests. The reason there were lots is because they were people. They died. And so one would die and he'd be succeeded by another priest and he would die and be succeeded by another and he'd die and be succeeded by another and he'd die and be succeeded by another. So there were lots of Levitical priests, but there's only one Jesus. There were lots of Levitical priests, but there is only one Jesus. Now, what that points to is the fact that Jesus is unique. And in his uniqueness, he is better than the priests who died because he never dies. His priesthood is forever. It's forever. Its work and its effects continue forever. Now, the fact that he is only one, the only one, that he is unique, speaks of his supreme value. He's the only one who's a priest forever, so he's absolutely unique. Therefore, Jesus has supreme value. Follow this. The idea of uniqueness, the uniqueness of Christ, is part of what we are referring to when we say he is holy. Part of what we mean when we say when we sing, when we read that God is holy, part of what we mean is that he is unique. He is one of a kind. He's in a class by himself. That is part of what it means to be holy. One of a kind in a class by himself. Moses sang about it in Exodus 15, 11. He taught Israel to sing, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? In other words, who is like you? There's nobody like you, God. You're totally unique. Centuries later, Hannah, uh, the prophet Samuel's mama, comes along, and she sings this song in 1 Samuel 2, 2. 
There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. And then the prophet Isaiah quotes the Lord himself in Isaiah 40, 25, saying, To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Who's my equal, says the Lord? Who is like me? Who is like you, said Moses. There's no one like you, O Lord, said Hannah. You see, God is absolutely unique, which means that he is holy. He's different. He's set apart. He's out of class. Everything else is in a class. Everything else is part of a class. You and I are humans, right? We're, we're, we're people. We're part of a class. We are humans. We're part of that class. Rover is a dog. He's part of the dog class, right? He's just one of many. The oak is a tree and just one of many. The earth is a planet and just one of many. The Milky Way is one of about a billion galaxies. Gabriel is one of many angels. Satan is one of many demons. But there is only one God. There is only one. There is only one God. Therefore, he and he alone is holy, meaning he is utterly different, distinct, and unique. All else is creation. He alone creates. All else begins. He alone always was. All else depends. He alone is self-sufficient. The otherness of God, the uniqueness of God is part of what we say and sing when we picture God as being holy. Now, the holiness of God denotes his infinite value. The uniqueness of God, that only God is God, denotes his infinite value. For example, diamonds are valuable, why? because they're rare and hard to find. That's the only reason. Diamonds are rare, or are valuable, excuse me, because they're rare and hard to find. I see you women giggling. I know, they're pretty too, whatever. <laughs> the main reason why they're valuable is because they are rare and hard to find. God is infinitely valuable because he is the rarest of all beings, cannot be made, nor was he ever made. Therefore, he is the most valuable of all beings. To say that God is holy means that his value is infinitely greater than the sum of the value of all created beings. Get that. Because we are given to humanism. The value of humans and human things. But you must understand theologically that God is more valuable than all created things put together. God is more valuable. His value is infinite. Now, that would have spoke so loudly to the original recipients of the letter because they're having hard times and they're thinking about going back to the Levitical priesthood. And very simply, the author here is saying, wait a minute, guys, God is holy. You knew those priests. You were friends with some of them. Some of them might have even been in your family. You, knew, you know what that chump was like. But God, God is holy. God is unique, and Jesus Christ is God. Therefore, he is more valuable. Don't bail out on him. Hold on to him in times of difficulty. Now, this speaks loudly to us, too, because 
we have a proclivity as people to pursue valuable things, don't we? We have a proclivity as people to pursue valuable things, some more than others, and that's fine. But intrinsic in each one of us is this thing that wants to go after things that are valuable. I think it's a God thing. I think God put it in us that we might pant after him. I think God put it in us that we might desire after him. It's perverted and it is maligned by the fall of man and by sin. But what it is there for is that we might seek God. We like things that are valuable and precious because God is the most valuable and precious thing over and above all creation. So then what the Christian who's been redeemed needs to do is to harness that proclivity to search for value and direct it to Jesus Christ. All that energy that we put into valuable things and shiny things and the newest and the cutest little things... Put it into Jesus Christ. Put it into Jesus Christ. God said, you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will fall in line. And so this never ending search for value, channel it toward the person of Jesus Christ. It pays dividends. It is the best investment to pursue the person of Jesus Christ. He is of greatest value. Check yourself in your daily pursuits. Check yourself in your corazón, in your heart. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's not speaking of moral purity. That's speaking of focus. Pure in heart means undivided in heart. Blessed are the undivided in heart, the singular in heart, myopic, those whose hearts are solely focused upon Jesus Christ, for they shall see God. Set your heart on him. Now, we're going to skip verse 25 for a moment because we're going to end with that because I want to. And we're going to go verse 26. Verse 26 says, For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Man, that should have hit these Hebrew Christians right between the eyes. They're thinking of going back to Levitical Judaism. They, they want to bring to the priests and before God ox and sheep and lambs and pigeons and barley and all this stuff when Jesus Christ gave himself what does first Peter say? Peter got it. Peter says, we were not redeemed with perishable things like gold or silver, but with the blood of the spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, with the imperishable blood of Jesus Christ, with the most precious thing. Jesus offered up himself. Verse 28, for the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. Notice that. He's simply telling them, hey guys, I know you're attracted to go toward the old things, the comfortable things, fall back on what you knew, but compared to Jesus Christ, those things are weak sauce. Weak sauce. Those things are weak compared to the person of Jesus Christ. What are you even thinking? What are you doing, he tells them. And then he says, the word of oath, which came after the law, points a son made perfect forever. Jesus is perfect. Therefore, he's able to meet our needs. Well, be careful. Be theologically careful. Hold on a minute. Jesus Christ does not exist for your needs, self-centered Christian. That's not what Christianity is about. Be careful. He's perfect, so he's able to meet your needs, but he does not exist to meet your needs. There's a real problem in the church. We've made 
Christianity, meanity. We've made it about us. We come to church looking to get our needs met. Preacher, you better do it like I like it. Not too long, just right. <laughs> temperature better be real good up in this joint. You guys better nail that temperature thing. It's been too cold. It's been too hot. It hasn't been right. Or oh, I like the old stage. I don't like the new stage. I don't like this song. I like that other song. I don't like Dominic. I like Lazo. I don't like the dreadlocks. I like the tattoos. <laughs> Consumer Christianity is the height of wickedness because a church doesn't exist to meet your needs. It exists to glorify Jesus. That is why the church exists is to glorify Jesus Christ. And your will and your wants need to be subsumed by that larger cause, the glory of Jesus Christ. Now that we're putting ourselves in check, let me say it again. Verse 28 says Jesus is perfect, therefore he's able to meet our needs. I like the way the NIV reads in verse 26. It simply says Jesus meets our needs as a high priest. And then it lists some things about Jesus Christ. It says that he's holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. There we see that word holy again. We already talked about a facet of it. When describing Jesus Christ, it talks about the fact that he's unique and exceedingly rare, that he's the only one. Only Jesus is Jesus. Now, the word holy in the New Testament. Usually when you see the word holy in the New Testament, it is in the Greek language hagios. Hagios. Often translated saint or saints, okay, when it's used in its noun form. And so when we're called holy, it's hagios. When we're called saints, it's hagios. When Jesus is called holy here, it's a different word for holy. It's hasios, not hagios, hasios. The difference is everything in the world. Hagios speaks of positional holiness, being set apart for God. This is what happens to us through the cross of Jesus Christ, that we are made positionally holy. Because God views us through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are made positionally holy because he took our position on the cross. He lived a perfect life because we couldn't. And his perfection is credited to our account. And so we are made positionally holy. The practical, well, mm, practical holiness is a work in progress for you and I, isn't it? Hagios speaks of positional holiness. But this word used about Jesus is hasios. We are hagios. He is hasios. Hasios speaks of personal holiness. We're only holy by position. Don't kid yourselves. Jesus is holy in person. He is holy intrinsically. It means one who has committed no crime, no error, no foul. That there is nothing wrong that he is perfect in character and in conduct. Only Jesus Christ is this way. Only Jesus Christ is undefiled by sin and free from wickedness. I got to tell you, only Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you that Buddha was a sinner. I'm going to tell you that Confucius was a sinner. I'm going to tell you that Muhammad was a gross, perverted sinner. You better read a history book that's not biased. He was a sinner. Only Jesus Christ is holy in person. 
only Jesus Christ is undefiled by sin and perfect in character and utterly free from wickedness. It also says about him that he's innocent. The Greek word is akakos. Comes from two, it comes from a prefix, a, which means not, and kakos, which means bad or evil. You could remember that because it sounds like kaka, right? <laughs> Greek word kakos, it means bad or evil, sounds like the English word kaka, so you can remember that now, at least that's how I did in Greek class. <laughs> kakos means bad or evil, akakos means not bad, not evil, innocent. Jesus is innocent. He is free from all that is evil, totally void of it, therefore he is also, as the verse says, undefiled. What does it mean that he's undefiled? It means he's free from anything that hinders, impairs, or deforms the strength, power, and effectiveness of his person. He is free from anything that hinders, impairs, or deforms the strength, power, and effectiveness of his person. Everybody else is defiled. We are positionally made undefiled by the blood of Jesus Christ, wash white as snow. Can I get an amen? amen. Wash white as snow. But practically speaking, we're hindered, we're impaired by character by flaws, by original sin, and by practical sin. Only Jesus Christ is free from both. Only Jesus Christ is free from both. The Old Testament, uh, priests had to make themselves outwardly undefiled by going through the ritual ceremonies to do so. Only Jesus is intrinsically undefiled. Absolutely pure, unstained by sin. Absolutely pure, unstained by sin. That means you can trust him because he's holy, because he's innocent, because he's undefiled, means he's always right. And he's always right on. And he's always good. And he's always wise. And he's always loving. And he's always caring. He's always awesome. That means that you can trust Jesus with your life. You can trust Jesus with your heart. You can trust Jesus with your hurts. You can trust Jesus with your relationships. You can trust him with your finances. You can trust him with your kids. You can trust Jesus. He's holy and innocent and undefiled. He's trustworthy. He's able to meet our needs, amen. And it says sort of a, Summary statement that he's separate from sinners. Separate from sinners, meaning he's not like us. He came to seek and to save and to find us. He draped himself in humanity, but he's not a sinner. He gave himself as a sacrifice for sinners. God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so we might be made the holiness of God in him or the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. But he is not a sinner. Don't confuse that. Jesus Christ is not a sinner. He is able to help sinners. In fact, he's really into helping sinners. He's really into helping you and I. Whatever's weighing you down, whatever's breaking you, whatever's got you laden with guilt and shame and condemnation, he is so into helping you with that. He is able to help. Whatever addiction is going on in your life, whatever habitual sin, whatever thing you keep falling into, Jesus is able to help you. And it says in chapter 4, verse 15, that he sympathizes with our weaknesses. Now, we sympathize with each other's weaknesses because we're all alike. We're all sinners. All of you are going to sign up for a home group in the next three weeks. We're going to make you. All of you are going to sign up for a home group in the next three weeks. 
most awesome thing is going to happen when you're going to go home group. You're going to show up there and you're going to realize everybody's as lame as you. <laughs> it's going to be incredible. You're going to realize, wow, we're all super lame. <laughs> and we're all really cheesy. And we all struggle and we're all lame. Okay, this is awesome. Home group, let's do this thing. Now, because we're all lame and sinners and cheese balls, we can sympathize with each other. Like, oh, I know how you feel. I'm just as cheesy and lame. I know how you feel. We can sympathize and we can help each other. Now, Jesus sympathizes and helps from a different perspective altogether. He's going to be at your home group too, by the way. But he will be the only non-lame one in the hizzle. He'll be the only non-lame one in the house. But he will sympathize with you from a different perspective. He will sympathize with us sinners who are tempted by sin because of the fact that he is the only one in history to resist sin all the way to the end and get the victory. Every other human that's ever lived has given in to sin. Jesus Christ as the God-man is the only one that has ever resisted sin to the very end. Therefore, he and he alone knows the full brunt, the weight, the power, and the destruction of sin. And so when he sees his little kids, los niños, when he sees the kids struggling with it, he is sympathetic and compassionate toward us like a father is because he knows the full weight and the brunt and the power of sin, he's victorious over it. He's victorious over it. And because we are beset by it, he sympathizes and he's merciful. And he can help us more than anybody else. So get your eyes off other people and get them on Jesus. Nobody can help you like Jesus can help you. Who are you gonna call? Call Jesus. Who are you gonna turn to? Turn to Jesus Christ. It says there that he is exalted above the heavens. Hebrews 1.3 said that he's seated at the right hand of majesty on high. So you can see here that the author is making his point abundantly clear. That Jesus is, is better than the Levitical priests. As good as they were, they were not holy. They were not void of evil. They were not innocent. They were not undefiled. They were sinners and they were not exalted above the heavens. But Jesus is holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners and exalted above the heavens. And so what he's telling them is, don't go back to those old priests. Don't go back to the old priesthood. Don't go back to the old things. Just stick with Jesus. I know it's hard right now. Stick with Jesus. You're going to have to make some really hard decisions. There's going to be some really hard decisions coming your way. Choose for Jesus. Choose according to his character and his righteousness. That's what he's telling them. Is get your eyes on Jesus. Don't look back. Leave what's behind behind. Forget what lies behind and press on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Get your eyes on Jesus. Now, this is important for the church to learn. Here's why. Historically speaking, the church has experienced tremendous failure on the part of its leadership. Church history is wrought with men who have failed horribly as leaders in every way imaginable. And historically speaking, when the church has had their eyes too much on a man or a movement or even on the mission and not enough on Jesus Christ, then the church is shipwrecked when that man fails. Don't be that church. I'm going to do my best by the grace of God and the help of my friends who hold me accountable and my beloved wife not to be that man. But you don't be that church. Don't be that church. Get your eyes off me. Get your eyes off me and get them on Jesus. What if I failed tomorrow? Did that somehow change your relationship with Jesus Christ? No, it can't. If it did, it was a monumental failure on your part. 
I will fail in all sorts of ways. I'm a man. I'm going to make mistakes. Some of them not so big, some of them you're going to hate. That's just the way it is. I'm a man. If your eyes are on me, your church experience is going to suck. If you get your eyes on Jesus and keep them on Jesus, it's going to be awesome because he'll never fail. He'll never fail. He never fails. Amen, sister. I love you, Ruth. Verse 25. Here's where we finish. Verse 25 says, Hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is able to save forever. The Greek word forever can also be translated completely. I believe the idea of both is intrinsic in this word, in this context. He is able to save us forever, and he's able to save us completely the way that he made us, body, mind, spirit. He saves us completely. He's able to accomplish not just our justification and our sanctification, but our glorification. He's able to save us forever and totally from everything. He is able to do that, to save us completely and forever since his priesthood is forever. Now, who does he save forever and completely? The verse is explicit. Those who draw near to God through him. Those who come to God through him, he is able to save forever and completely. Jesus Christ is the only way. He says in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So if you go through him, he is able, totally able, means he has all the ability in and of himself to save you forever and completely. Those who draw near to God through him, but there's a, there's a little clue we gotta get in the original Greek. That verb draw near is in the present tense. Okay, it means that it is a continuous action. Who does he save forever and completely? Those who continue to draw near to God. It's a continuous action. He could have said it in the aorist tense, that is the past tense. Those who once drew near to God. Like an altar call sort of thing. Or he could have said it in the perfect tense, meaning it was punctiliar, it happened at a moment, it happened at a time, but it has continuous effects into the future. But he didn't. He said it in the present tense, which means God is able to save forever and completely those who continue to draw near to him. Why wouldn't the author of Hebrews say that? The whole warning in the book has been, don't drift. Don't drift, don't fall away, hang on, pull tighter, draw near to the person of Jesus Christ. That's the whole thrust of the book, is hold on to and draw near to the person of Jesus Christ. Remember the picture of the forerunner? That the big boat's trying to come into the little harbor, but the winds and the waves are too contrary. So they send the little boat under manpower and it goes in and it ties off to the anchor. And then those on the big ship just hold on to this line and they pull themselves to the anchor. That boat that went out and anchored them was the forerunner. Jesus Christ died for us, rose from the dead, ascended unto heaven to the right hand of God as our forerunner, intending to take us with him. All we have to do is hold on and draw near. So all we've got to do is hold on and draw near. If you're holding on to Jesus Christ and continually drawing near to him, you're absolutely secure. Amen. If you're falling away and you're drifting, the Bible offers you no security, no comfort, none whatsoever. There is not a verse for the backslider that says, it's okay. 
It's all right. Don't worry about it. There's nothing even close. In fact, as we saw in Hebrews chapter 6, there's quite the opposite. What is a protocol for a Christian? Just stick with Jesus, man. It's not that hard. Just stick with Jesus and he'll get us there. He is able to save forever and completely those who continue to draw near to him. He's a forerunner who went before. All you got to do is hand over hand, draw near. Now, here's some encouragement about that. Notice what it says in the second part of the verse, he always lives to make intercession for us. Always lives to make intercession for us. This is neat, really neat that he intercedes for us, but it might not be what you think it is. He always lives, meaning the duration of his ministry. He'll never stop doing this, okay? He always lives to make intercession for us. What does his intercession consist of? The popular notion is that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, always praying for us. I I think we get that notion because we read into the term intercession, intercessory prayer. Why do we do that? Because that's Christianese. We talk about intercessory prayer. It's what we do Thursday nights. It's what we do Tuesday mornings. It's what we do Sunday mornings. Prayer meetings, intercessory prayer. We read into the fact that he intercedes for us the idea of prayer. And so we have this notion that Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father going, oh, Father, look at Britt today. He is such a mess. Do you know what he's planning on doing? Father, would you stop him from doing that? Father, can you hook him up with this and that and the other today? Father, he's having trouble with his dirt bike. Will you hook him up with a wonderful mechanic that'll work on it for free for him? Lord, do you think that? That's a popular idea, but I don't think that's a biblical idea. I don't think Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father always praying for your drama. I just don't. Here's what it means. The term intercession means to intervene on behalf of another. To intervene on behalf of another. The idea here is defending our position as having been redeemed. Defending our position as having been redeemed. It's not so much intercessory prayer as you think, but it's the idea of intercession as it pertains to intervening and defending. Now, do we need a defender? You better believe we need a defender because there is an accuser. Right? Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before God day and night. Who is that? Satan. He is the accuser of the brethren. We see him functioning against Joshua the high priest in Zechariah chapter 3 verse 1 where it says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. There is an accuser. Because there's an accuser, we need a defender. And that was the lament of people throughout the Old Testament. 1 Samuel 2.25 says, If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Job 9.33, for God is not a man as I am that I may answer him, that we can just go to court together. There's no umpire between us who may lay his hands on both of us. Humanity is lamenting the fact that we are separated from God by our sins, and in the midst of that separation stands an accuser who exacerbates the situation by always pointing out the obvious. Then comes Isaiah 53. 
Verse 12, because he, speaking of Jesus, poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. What does that mean? But he intervened. How did God intervene for sinners? By Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, draping himself in humanity, being born of a virgin, walking in Israel, seeking and saving the lost through his atoning death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and his ascension, where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, continuing the priestly ministry of interceding, intervening, and defending. Jesus Christ is always defending you and I. Now, he intervened and interceded on behalf of others through a substitutionary death on the cross. And the work of the cross is finished. To tell us, I said, paid in full. But the accuser is not yet finished. So Jesus always lives to make intercession, to defend and represent us like a lawyer like a lawyer. In fact, that's exactly what it says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. We have a representative. Now, Jesus Christ was wounded upon the cross. Note very carefully, he died upon the cross, but there were these particular wounds. Note very carefully that the Bible says explicitly in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, that when Jesus comes again, people will be able to look upon his wounds. In his resurrected body, he was healed. When he appeared to the disciples, it doesn't seem that his back was any longer quivering ribbons of flesh. He was healed from the scourging and other things, but did he not say to Thomas, Tommy, you don't believe? Press your fingers into the wounds. Here in my hands, here on my side. Jesus still bears the wounds that when Satan accuses, Jesus can intervene and say, to tell us die. Paid him full. It is finished. It is done. When anyone seeks to condemn us, there is Christ. It is done. It's paid in full. I took care of that. If ever there's any doubt in your own mind, he intervenes to tell us die. Paid in full. If ever you find yourself in the place of Thomas, wondering and wandering, press in to the wounds of Jesus Christ. They speak of our finished salvation and by them he intervenes, he intercedes, he defends you and I. He is the high priest who represents us as being forgiven. So when you're tripping, Jesus is representing Hebrews 9.24, for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. He's there for us, representing the finished work of the cross. And if anybody, including Satan, brings charges against us, well, Romans 8 deals with that. Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies 
Who's the one who condemns? Well, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Clearly, this interceding is an intervening of defense. He's our defense lawyer. When we're tripping about the sentence, about the guilt, about the condemnation, about the price, he is representing paid in full, done for. I dealt with it at the cross. And so lay hold of that by faith. You've got to lay hold of that. You've got to, by faith. We don't see him now, so to speak. But three times the New Testament says in Romans, Galatians, and in Hebrews, the righteous shall walk by faith and not by sight. So by faith, because he still bears the wounds and because he continues his priestly ministry of representing us before God, know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't give the enemy the credit. Don't give religion the credit. Don't do it to yourself and don't do it to your others. We've been forgiven and we can draw near because of Christ's defense and his defense settles the case. It settles the case. Romans 8, 38, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Jude 24 and 25, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for these wonderful truths and for your ministry of intercession that you are intervening when the enemy is accusing. Thank you that that ministry is perpetual. Help us to lay hold of that by faith, Lord. Lord, help those who are weak here, who feel weighed down with sin and the guilt of sin, and with addiction and brokenness, those that feel trapped. Holy Spirit, would you come and minister all the benefits of the cross to us? We want all the benefits of the cross in this place. Holy Spirit, come. Help us by faith to press into the wounds by which we are healed and to receive that healing in the person of Jesus. Holy Spirit, minister the love of the Father deep to our hearts and teach us to continually draw near. Forgive us, Lord, for being wayward and rebellious and lazy and tempted by so many other things. Lord, draw us deeper into your heart. Show us more of your holiness, your infinite value that the things of the world would pale in comparison. Thank you, Father, for the perfect plan of salvation and forgiving your son. If any of you need more help today in any way, the prayer team is here. You can come get on your face before the Holy One and come and remember his wounds with the bread and the cup.